Second Kings chapter 20 this morning, I'll be reading the first 11 verses, verses 1 through 11. Please give your attention to God's word. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs, and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps, by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 8, and it begins with these familiar words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Have you ever had moments like King David had there? Where you look at something in God's creation that is massive, that's large beyond your imagination, maybe the stars in the sky or some great mountain range, or sitting on the shore and looking at the ocean, and you're reminded of just how big this creation is. And how small you are. You feel fragile. You feel insignificant. And yet you can't help but worship. Overcome by the thought that God even notices you. Let alone cares for you. Provides for you. And saves you. Through the blood of his son. I had a moment like that recently. I saw a video And the video began with just a picture of a young woman's face looking up at the sky. And then using computer animation, they 
zoomed out from her face, out through the atmosphere, out through the uh, solar system, out through the galaxy and far beyond, out to a point 10 billion light years away and showed you all of the galaxies and all the wonders of the heavens in between. And then once it got to that point out near the edge of the known universe, it reversed itself and began to zoom in. And it zoomed in through all of those galaxies and through the solar system and down to Earth again and down to her face, but it kept going. And it zoomed into her eye, into the pupil of her eye and into the retina of her eye. And in her retina, it zoomed into a white blood cell and then into a chromosome, and then into a strand of DNA, and then into an atom, and then all the way down to a quark, whatever that is. And I was just stunned that my God, the God that I know and walk with every day, did all of this. Made me think, too, that what a great major, if any of you are undecided about your major, what a great double major, astronomy and molecular biology. Wouldn't that be great to... Spend your time exploring the extent of God's creation in both ways. You would spend a lot of time worshiping. God designed and made all of it. He sustains all of it. He provides for all of it. And yet, he cares for me as an individual person. David said in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You see, he's thinking about that same thing. That this God of the universe knows not only when he sits down and when he rises up, but this God knows the thoughts of his heart, the words that are on his tongue before he speaks them. This God knows him that intimately. It's too wonderful to comprehend. For a couple of months, we've been looking at deliverance on a large scale in terms of human history. We've been looking at how God allowed the nation of Assyria to invade Palestine and invade and take over the cities of Judah and go all the way to Jerusalem and put Jerusalem under the threat of a siege and total annihilation. And we saw last week how God, at the end of that, delivered his people in a miraculous way, wiped out an Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers and delivered his people. But in this passage, it's interesting, now we move to chapter 20 and the focus is on Hezekiah as an individual. God delivers the remnant of his people, but he also delivers Hezekiah and works intimately in the life of Hezekiah as an individual. In the American church, we, especially in our theological circles, we tend to criticize how the American church seems to focus only on God's relationship with individuals and seems to lose sight of the fact of how God works in the corporate body of Christ, in the church, that the scriptures really emphasize God's greater plan for the church. But we got to be careful not to overreact. We tend to do that in church history. We tend, when the church goes too far one direction, we tend to go too far the other direction. And we can't lose sight of the fact that just as equally as God works in and delivers the people of God, the church, he also delivers us as individuals 
and loves us intimately as individuals. I see in Scripture a God who can easily multitask, a God who's able to govern the edges of the universe and also the inner workings of the human cell. He's able to guide all the details of human history according to his sovereign plan, but also to be intimately involved in the details of every moment of every day of my life. A God who's able to, yes, fulfill his promises of deliverance and salvation for the church, but also fulfill his promises of salvation and deliverance for me as an individual. And even though our lives here in the 21st century are very different from the life of a Judean king 700 years before Christ. And there are some definitely, as you look at how God works at Hezekiah's life in this incident that's recorded in the beginning of chapter 20, he doesn't work that way in our lives very often or probably ever, but there's some real strong similarities, and that's what I'd like us to focus upon as we look at this text. The similarities between how God worked in Hezekiah's life as an individual believer to how he works in our lives. In verse 1, it says that Hezekiah became sick. He became sick to the point of death. Now, it looks like if you're just reading chronologically and you're reading through chapter 18 and chapter 19, it looks like all this happened after this miraculous deliverance from the Assyrian armies. But this is actually going back in time. It's actually a flashback. When it says in the day, in those days, it's talking about in the days that King Hezekiah reigned. And so he's, not, he's intentionally not going chronologically. We know that for, for at least three reasons. First of all, we'll see at the end of chapter 20 that Hezekiah and Jerusalem was very wealthy at this point in history that chapter 20 is relating, that they had a lot of wealth because they were able to impress ambassadors from Babylon with how much they had. But we know that near the end of Hezekiah's life, when the Assyrian army was about to invade, he emptied the treasuries of the palace and emptied the treasuries of the temple and even stripped the gold off the doors of the temple so that he could send a big financial gift or a gift of tribute to the Assyrian king to try to convince him not to invade. And so we know that this must have happened before he gave all of that wealth to the king of Assyria. We also know that as part of this deliverance that God is going to give him Hezekiah 15 more years to live. Well, if You take 15 years after the Assyrian army was destroyed, we know that that, historically that puts Hezekiah's death after the time when we know he died, when we know that his reign was over. So obviously this is talking about a 15-year period before the Assyrian invasion. And then most conclusively, if you just take a look at verse 6, as part of God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer, he says that the city of Jerusalem will be delivered from Assyria. So obviously this is something that hadn't happened yet. So anyway, chapter 20 is talking about events. The whole chapter is about events that took place earlier than the Assyrian invasion. And I'm sure it's recorded in scripture for the same reason that I've been saying. It's to show us that even though God was concerned for his people as a whole, he had just as strong concern for Hezekiah as an individual. And we see him working in Hezekiah's life in this situation in a similar way in which he works in our lives. First of all, the Lord tests Hezekiah just as he tests us. That's a normal way of the Lord working in the lives of his people is to test them. 
In verse 1, the prophet Isaiah was sent to Hezekiah with a very ominous message from the Lord. Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to receive a prophecy like that. I really don't want to know the day that I'm going to die. I wouldn't want to live with that knowledge. But some people receive that knowledge through doctors, you know, and they tell you you have six months to live or a year to live. You know what kind of impact that has on a person's life to know that you have, you're on the verge of leaving this world. And so the purpose of the message that Isaiah gave to Hezekiah is spelled out very clearly. It says, set your house in order. Set your house in order. I don't think he means there to make sure your will is up to date and make sure your wife and kids are going to be provided for. I'm sure that's not what it meant only. It meant, what are your priorities, Hezekiah? What are you living for? Where is your treasure? Where is your hope? And isn't that how the tests of our lives tend to challenge us? When we face tests, it's the Lord's way of saying, where are your priorities? Where is your hope? Where is your wealth? That's how the Lord deals with us. Because the answers to those questions are for the strengthening of our faith. We're going to soon see that the Lord didn't end his life at this point. But does that mean that God changed his mind? Does that mean that God fully intended to end Hezekiah's life at that point, but Hezekiah so prevailed upon him in prayer that he changed his mind? No, God's plan is perfect, and God doesn't change his plan in accordance with our wishes, and I'm glad he doesn't. But why did he do it then? Why did he intervene in Hezekiah's life in this way? Well, again, it's a test. The same way that God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and take him to the top of the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to me. God didn't, we know in hindsight now that God never intended for Abraham to follow through on that. But he laid it before Abraham as a challenge. He withheld information from Abraham so that this situation would be a test. I think that's one of the reasons we don't know the future in so many cases is the bottom line question is, do you trust the Lord? Will you walk in obedience even if it doesn't, fit, doesn't make sense in light of your circumstances? It's similar to Jonah's message to the city of Nineveh, which is, interestingly, the capital of Assyria. When the prophet Jonah was sent to Nineveh, he was given a message from the Lord. Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. And yet the Lord didn't destroy Nineveh in 40 days. Why? Because he was testing the people of Nineveh. And implied in the statement that Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days, implied in that was an invitation to the people of Nineveh to get on their knees and repent of their sin. And when they did that, the Lord did not bring judgment upon them. And so in a very similar way, that's what's going on here. When Isaiah says to Hezekiah, you're going to die, you're not going to recover from this deathly illness, there's an implication there of an invitation to plead with the Lord for more life. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did in faith. He didn't go out and despair in a lack of faith. He went to the Lord and he wept before the Lord and he pled with the Lord for grace And the Lord responded. 
And this is what we said last week. We talked about how the Lord always works through the prayers of his people. The Lord doesn't need to do that. Lord didn't change his plan. This was his plan all along, but he chooses to work through the prayers of his people. And the reason he does that is to bring himself glory, but also to strengthen our faith. Because when we pray to the Lord in situations like that, it makes our faith stronger. And that's his great purpose for our life, is to deepen and strengthen our faith. You know, why did he send Isaiah to Hezekiah in the first place if he didn't want Hezekiah to respond in the way that he did? And that's the beauty of the tests that we face in life, the suffering that we must go through by God's wise plan. We know that if we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, then we belong to God, we have a relationship with God based upon grace alone, and therefore, when we suffer, we're not being punished for any sins. I know a lot of Christians that when they suffer, they keep asking, why is God punishing me? But God does never, never punishes a sin twice. That would be unjust. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. So when we suffer, we know for sure that it's not punishment for our sin. We know that it's motivated, initiated, and planned by God for the strengthening of our faith. We know that. Either in terms of discipline, to show us if we're going in a wrong way, like a loving parent disciplines a child, or just to strengthen our faith, like a, a trainer will strengthen somebody who's working out at the gym to make you use your faith to make it stronger. It's an act of grace on God's part. William Cowper, the great hymn writer who suffered a lot in his life, a lot more than you and I would ever suffer, he wrote a hymn based on his experiences called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And the best known line from that hymn is powerful in the same sense. It says, the, uh, the song says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Only the redeemed child of God knows that whatever frowning providence you face in life, that behind that is the smiling face of your Father in heaven who is using it for his good purposes to strengthen your faith. Secondly, the Lord rewards Hezekiah for his obedience in a similar way in which he rewards us for our obedience. Look at verse 3. Hezekiah prays and he weeps. And this is what he says. This is only part of his prayer that's recorded in Scripture. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. It doesn't even include his request, but it's implied there. Do you pray like that? I mean, when's the last time you prayed and said to the Lord, I've been so faithful to you, Lord. I've walked in all your ways. I've kept your law. So please give me what I ask for. We don't pray that way. We tend to pray, Lord, I'm a miserable, wicked sinner. I only am here by your grace. Please, in spite of my sin, please give me what I request. But interestingly, both kinds of prayers are appropriate in Scripture. Both kinds of prayers show up in Scripture. Matter of fact, you'll often see it in the book of Psalms, which are patterns for our prayer life. Let me just read to you a portion of Psalm 18. 
says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. That just doesn't sound very Christian, does it? But we're not talking about salvation here. Salvation is by grace alone. All of us would be in the pits of hell if if God hadn't saved us by his grace alone. This is talking about how God deals with his redeemed children. And it is true that he rewards righteousness. That's a consistent message from scripture. These believers are not claiming to be sinless. They're not claiming to be perfect. What they're saying is, I, am, I have a relationship by, with God by his grace, but because of his work in me, I have walked according to his ways. I am living in obedience to him. Not perfectly, but I am living in faithfulness to the Lord. And the Lord has promised that when we walk in his ways, we will be blessed. That's the thinking behind this kind of prayer. Hezekiah is appealing to the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace that God established with his people. When he chose for himself a people and bound them to himself by his own commitment to them, he said, I am going to redeem you. I am going to call you to myself. I will be your God. You'll be my people. And then he laid out before them his will in the form of the law. And he said, if you walk according to my law, I will bless you. If you reject my law, then you will come under under." under uh, punishment and curse and so the visible people of God the Old Testament knew that the way to blessing in God's sight was to walk in the ways in which he taught us God rewards those who obey his word the path to a good life even in this fallen world is the path of righteousness and that doesn't mean that the righteous won't suffer. We've already seen that. God does test us. God does send suffering into our lives. Sometimes to discipline us when we've rejected his law and aren't walking in obedience. He does it in love, not to punish us, but to draw us back to himself. But often he, he sends suffering in order to strengthen faith, even when we're walking in obedience. So there's no guarantee in this life that your life is going to be easy and comfortable and prosperous when you walk in obedience. But I do guarantee that if you walk in the Lord's ways and you live according to his word, your life will be blessed. You may have physical suffering, you may have financial suffering, you may have relational suffering, but if you walk in obedience to the word of the Lord, he will bless you in far more important ways than than you can sense with your five senses. The Lord rewards his people, and he is faithful to that promise. Thirdly, this example from the life of Hezekiah shows us that the Lord is all about healing his people. In verses 4 to 6, you see there that Isaiah hadn't even hardly left the outer courts of the palace when the Lord speaks to him and sends him back to Isaiah to say, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. I love that statement. Not only have I heard your prayer, Hezekiah, but I've seen your tears. I was there as you were weeping. I was there looking upon you in love and deep concern and compassion when you were weeping. 
It reminds me of a a powerful psalm, Psalm 56. Listen to the words. Here's Here's David talking to his Lord. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. You know those late night times where you're tossing around in bed? The Lord has kept count of those tossings, is what it says. He says, you have put my tears in your bottle. The Lord knows how many tears we have wept. He has put them in his bottle, he says. Are they not in your book? They're all recorded. He knows every one of them. He goes on to say, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God, I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And the Lord healed him. Now, it wasn't a permanent healing. Fifteen years later, Hezekiah would die. That didn't mean the Lord loved him any less fifteen years later. But the Lord granted Hezekiah's request for 15 more years as a sign to him of his love for him, to reward his faith in praying to him in distress. Do you notice how he heals him? It's interesting to me. He heals him by means. Verse 7, Isaiah tells the people tending to Hezekiah, taking care of him, he says, take a cake of figs and put it on the boil. We don't know what his deadly disease was, but obviously it had ulcerated open uh, wounds of some sort, some open sore. And And Isaiah told the people tending to Hezekiah to take a paste of figs and put it on the boil. Now, that wasn't just some kind of, you know, prophets did weird things in the Old Testament, but it wasn't just some weird thing that, that Isaiah told him to do. It was actually a documented from other ancient historical sources. It's a documented medical procedure in that day. That's how they treated that sort of thing. Do you realize what that says to us? Even if the Lord tells you he's going to heal you, he will work through means. Sometimes he will heal you miraculously without means. But, and I think ordinarily we should say, he works through means. He works through medicine. He works through doctors. He works through medical technology. He works through hospitals. The Lord will heal when he says he's going to heal. In the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 5 on providence, it says, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. But all healings in this life are only temporary because the important work of healing in this phase of God's plan of salvation is the healing that's going on inside of us. And that spiritual healing is profound, it's deep, and it's comprehensive. And he is doing that work of healing in his children all the time. And the promise is that our bodies will be fully healed one day too. Do you know that? That's part of his covenant promise. He's going to heal our soul and he's going to heal our body because Isaiah told us in his prophecy of the Messiah's death, In Isaiah 53, he said, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We will be made perfect in body and soul at the end of the Lord's work in us. 
So Hezekiah's healing was a sign to us of the Lord's healing work in us, which will be complete one day. And then finally, Hezekiah's experience here shows us that the Lord loves to assure his people. He loves to assure his people. Look at verse 8. Hezekiah asked the Lord for a sign, a sign that he didn't heal him. It wasn't enough to Hezekiah to have Isaiah give him a word from the Lord that he'd be healed. He wanted something tangible. He wanted a sign that he could be sure that the Lord would fulfill his promise. What a contrast to his father Ahaz. Remember back in Isaiah 7, that passage we hear at Christmas time every year where uh, the Isaiah goes to King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, and he says, uh, the Lord is going to deliver you from your enemies. And he's offering to give you a sign. Remember, Ahaz said, I don't want a sign. Why? Because Ahaz didn't have faith in God's promise. He had faith in his own plans to seek help from elsewhere. And so he did not want a sign from the Lord because he didn't want assurance from the Lord. Remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they came to Jesus and demanded that he perform a sign for them. They said, go ahead, Jesus, do one of your great miracles for us, then we'll believe in you. And Jesus refused, because that's not what signs are for. Signs don't produce faith, signs confirm faith. Signs are given to those who have faith. And that's how God works, because he loves to give his people assurance when Gideon asked for the Lord for a sign, he asked the Lord to put dew on the fleece and make the, dr- the ground dry. And then he asked the Lord to make the fleece dry and the ground wet. You know, you know, how is the Lord, why in the world is he so patient with Gideon? Because he loved Gideon. He wanted Gideon's faith to grow stronger. And that's how he works with us, too. It's like the father of the demon-possessed boy. Jesus said, do you believe that I can heal your son? And he said, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And the Lord honors prayers like that. I don't know where your faith is this morning. It may be very weak. But if we ask the Lord to strengthen it, that's the kind of prayer that he loves to answer, to bring assurance to your faith. Hezekiah is given two choices. And this is one of the miracles that just blows my mind. It's a very simple thing, but what was involved in it, I have no idea what went on here. He said to Hezekiah, you can either have the shadow on the steps, the steps of Ahaz in the palace, which we think were probably just normal steps. You can either have the shadow on those steps move forward 10 steps or move backward 10 steps, the shadow from the sun. And Hezekiah says, well, it seems easier for it to go forward than backwards, so why don't you make it go backwards? And the Lord did it. I have no idea what was involved in that. I mean, there are some, there's a few miracles in Scripture that just, when you think about it scientifically, uh, did the Lord mess with the rotation of the earth there temporarily? Can you imagine what would happen to the rest of the world if he messed with the rotation for just a, a few minutes there? Well, he stopped the sun for a day when Joshua was battling the Amorites. He stopped the sun for a day. I don't know how that happened. Some commentators think that the Lord just refracted the sun's rays. He didn't actually mess with the rotation of the earth, and that's entirely possible. I don't know. 
One thing I will not have any patience for is somebody saying he couldn't have messed with the rotation of the earth because he certainly can. The God who made the cell in our bodies and made the edges of the universe is a God who can do anything. Remember what Jesus said to that father. He said, with God all things are possible. And that's the point. It's faith in that God that we're being called to. Miracles are a rare occurrence. I've never seen a real documented miracle in my life. I probably never will. You probably haven't and probably won't either. Maybe you have. But miracles aren't given to sustain our faith. They're occasionally given. Even in scriptural history, in the Bible's history, miracles aren't very common. We think that miracles are all through scripture, but when you think about how often they actually happened in biblical history, they didn't happen that often. Our faith is not to be propped up by miracles. But the Lord loves to assure us. He wants our faith to go stronger. That's what he's all about. We're a project in his hands, and it's all about making our faith strong. And miracles aren't to be the primary means of making our faith strong. The means of grace that he's given to the church are the ways that he makes our faith stronger. What are the means of grace? The word of God, especially the word of God preached. The sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism are given to assure us, to strengthen our faith. Prayer, fellowship, worship are other secondary means of grace that the God has given to strengthen our faith. And that's what the Lord wants, is a stronger faith in him. The Lord has made us his project as individuals. I never really had a mentor I came to know the Lord kind of on my own and never really had a mentor through college, even through seminary. And once I got done with seminary, they threw me out into a little country church in western Pennsylvania and said, go be a pastor. And nobody had ever really shown me how to do it. I've had to kind of make it up on my own and figure it out on my own, how to be a disciple and how to be a a leader in the church. And that's how the Lord chose to test me and, and bring me to where I am today. He works in different ways in everybody's lives. But there was one point in my life after I'd been a pastor for uh, quite a few years where the Lord did provide somebody to come into my life. I was uh, struggling with a little church uh, that was struggling to exist. It was struggling uh, to get started. I was sent there as a pastor, and I didn't know how to, to, to begin to lead them towards what we were calling revitalization. But in the Lord's grace and in his timing, the PCA had just started revitalization training. And they had, uh, they had done this kind of thing for church planting. Now they were doing it for churches that were struggling. And I was one of the first people to go through the system. And it gave me a chance to get to know one of the most well-known, most influential, most well-loved, prominent preachers, teachers in our denomination in a very large church down south. They, through that revitalization training, he took a special interest in me. He taught me a lot. And I was so appreciative. That somebody like that would look at a little insignificant pastor like me and take the time to invest in me like that. But you realize the Lord has done far more than that in each one of us. He's far more prominent than any earthly mentor. And he has taken you as his project, embraced you. He has sent his son to die for your sins so that you can be reconciled to him. He gave you his spirit and his word to make you like Christ. His whole project, his whole purpose in your life is to make your faith strong. He is transforming us from the inside out 
And he will save us completely. He does it by testing our faith, rewarding our obedience, healing us in soul and eventually in body, and assuring us again and again and again with great patience of his love and promises for us. Let me go back and read that first psalm I read from Psalm 8 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Let's pray. Father, we pray with the the great hymn writer, and can it be that we could participate in the shed blood of Christ, the saving work of Christ, and in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Father, why you have showered your love upon us, we don't know. We didn't deserve it. But thank you for choosing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sanctifying us and conforming us into the image of Christ. You've done such a great and faithful work so far. We just trust in you to complete the work that you began in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing 10,000